0: All right, John chapter 13. We're just continuing our journey through, through the gospel of John, and uh, we're probably going to be staying there for quite some time. Um, we've got some, some really wonderful things coming up this summer. In John chapter 15, we're going to take kind of a little topical break and do a series called The Art of Abiding, talking about some of our more contemplative practices around Sabbath and silence and solitude. And um, I've got one that I've been cooking on for quite some time, the notion of uh, the secret life, uh, the hidden life that God calls us to as Christians. And so for this morning, if you're in John chapter 13, Weston already read the passage for us. Let me pray. And we're going to get right into our meditation for the morning. Father, thank you that you always are faithful to direct our spirits. And in a day and age where deconstruction is the norm, where so many once saints of God are now turning from you, broken by their circumstances, confused, confused, by the cultural narratives, crushed by the weight of life in some cases. And yet, Jesus, you are perfectly faithful, always ready, always working in even our most dark moments to restore us. I am 100% sure that this meditation is a prophetic comfort to some this morning for the one who has just been unraveling at the seams. May you, Lord, let our souls take solace in your faithfulness and remind your children, the church, remind your children that Christianity is not about having this all figured out and doing it right. Christianity is about Jesus Christ having done all things right for us that we might just trust him. And so if you would, take a deep breath into your belly And let's study the Bible together. We've come to this major, major transition section in the Gospel of John. Remember, John is a very sophisticated piece of literature. And so he lays out and compiled his material, creating all these kind of benchmarks and turning points within the text itself. Traditionally, the section we're entering into has been called the Farewell Discourses, the end of chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17. And up until this point... Jesus had chosen a very particular people to be his closest confidence, to be the community that would carry on his kingdom work after his departure. And so the farewell discourses are Jesus's final encouragements to his people. They are his final words of instruction, and they are his final warnings. And so consider that add that weight to these words. These are the final things that Jesus said to the community that would carry on his kingdom work after his departure. Now, if you're like me, and it's the final words that you're going to speak to the team that's going to carry on the mission after you leave, I would think you would want to go like full Braveheart on your team, like face paint, rally the troops, get on the horse, ride in front of them. Here we go. If you were going to be delegating leadership to your senior generals, like with Peter, who would become the primary leader of the church after Jesus left you would think that he would grab Peter and be like Peter just encouraging him your devotion to me is obvious your zeal and your passion for the kingdom they are without measure Peter I am delegating to you the responsibility of the church you're going to be the next pope <laughs> and instead Jesus grabs Peter and he says to him you're going to deny me no brave heart, no face paint no encouragements, no rallying the troops, but a warning to his senior leader. You're going to utterly fail in what will seem the worst way imaginable. These are his departing words to his friend and confidant, Peter. And that really is the, that's the centerpiece. That's the kernel of our meditation for the morning. You and I, as followers of Jesus, we are all going to go through many, many seasons of disorienting circumstances. And those confusing days will strip our souls bare. But it is those confusing and disorienting days, those circumstances that seem to almost crush us, those circumstances, those days, those seasons, in the end end up creating a thicker, truer, more full character that enables us to serve Jesus in this world as Jesus intends for us to serve him in this world. Peter's life and what we're about to meditate on is actually a blueprint for how the king is shaping you and preparing you and eventually wants to use you in greater measure, which I do believe if he was to show you what he wants to do with your life, the mustard seed of your life in this world, you would freak out and run. <laughs> you, would be, you would be heading for the hills. None of us right now are who we fully want to be. We all have glaring issues that we're all painfully conscious of. Impatience, anxiety, manipulative tendencies, white lie here, bold lie there, justifications on this, compromises on that. And so, the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in obedience to the scriptures and in concert with our community, He's working to transform those things. Those are the things that we're all like, I ah, wish I didn't have that. And the community around us is like, ah, I wish you didn't have that either. Accountability and scriptures and the spirit and all of those things. But we also all have hidden faults of the soul that we are oblivious to, blind spots. We have unseen flaws and weaknesses that Jesus is fully aware of in every detail, and he intends to expose those things to bring healing. The way he's bringing healing to our hidden faults is by the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, bringing about that new creation life, and the circumstances, the confusing, disorienting, crushing circumstances that strip us bare are the circumstances that are bringing forth that new life as our hidden faults are exposed. And so the process that God uses to transform a soul and reform a soul in the image of Jesus. In the world of theology, the big word is sanctification. Can we all say sanctification? It's a nice big Bible word, sanctification. Sanctification is the process whereby God sets us apart. He makes us holy. That's the big idea of holiness, being set apart for a purpose. He reveals our faults. He forgives us, and he sends us into the world to accomplish Jesus's purpose. And here's the deal, loved ones. We tend to want to sanitize the process of sanctification. In our minds, we want it to be a clean, linear process. Step one, step two, step three, check the boxes, climb the spiritual ladder, and voila. We arrive at our truest, most loving and kind self with no struggle whatsoever. But if you've been a Christian for longer than 15 minutes, you recognize that this is never our experience. We have a lot of baby believers in this church, brand new believers. Heed the warnings of your gracious King. Your sanctification is not going to be smooth sailing. We also have a lot of seasoned saints within this community. You are further along than you think you are in your disorientation. That's what this is all about. Our life with Jesus... It is filled with unmet expectations and our spiritual upward mobility often feels like we are actually just downwardly spiraling out of control. Our minds and our hearts are often clouded with doubt and we feel disoriented rather than certain. And so the life of Peter and this moment that we read is actually a very bright light in what is very often a dark, dark process. The transformation of your soul will be fraught with failure. It will be confusing. And there will be depths of disappointment that are hard to fathom. And yet, on the other side of these horrific events is always the kindness and the faithfulness and the restoration of Jesus to the fullness of who he intends us to be. Maybe this morning, you're sitting there and you've been thinking, I am so far from God. You're the one who feels like you're barely holding on by a thread. You have been on the brink, maybe for days, weeks, months, maybe it's going on years now of literally doing what Peter was promised he would do. Denying Jesus and walking away from it all. And in praying over this message this week, I don't think that this is a prophetic critique of your soul right now. I think God wants to bring a prophetic comfort to your heart. In your confusion and disorientation, he wants to remind you that you are actually still his and he is shaping you and preparing you. Jesus is inviting all of us day by day to come as we are, empty and broken and at the end of ourselves, and there find our truest selves in Him. And so, from our passage this morning for you note takers, number one, our crises create true dependence. Our crises, plural, not just one, but our many crises over and over create true dependence. Number two, Jesus knows every detail. And number three, no disciple gets to skip this process, ever. In the section where we are now, Jesus, throughout the chapters that have preceded this, has been seeding with his disciples who just have not been able to get what he's been saying. He's been seeding the truth that he is not going to be around forever. And it's just gone right over the disciples' heads. They have an expectation of him being the ruling Messiah on earth as it is in heaven. And yet Jesus is saying, I'm going to be going away. And he's been saying that over and over. And so Peter's question is actually the question of a true disciple. Lord, where are you going? Peter wants to be where Jesus is, the heart of a true disciple. But Peter had not yet come to grips with those hidden blind spots, those fault lines in his soul. And there were these cracks in his character that Jesus warned him and encouraged him to know would need mending after their exposure. Peter's commitment, now track with this. This is so important, especially if you were raised in the church or you've been a Christian for a while. Peter's commitment, his, Lord, I will die with you commitment. Peter was actually, he was actually committed to a Jesus that he had interpreted from the Old Testament law. Jesus was, Jesus was actually In Peter's mind, something that he had made up. It's not that he hadn't been reading the scriptures. It's not that he hadn't been a faithful Jew trying to discern who Messiah was. It's that as he read the scriptures, the Old Testament prophecies, in Daniel, and Psalm 2, and many, many others, he envisioned, he had this expectation that came from his personal interpretation of who he thought Jesus would be. And so he was committed to that Jesus, and he thought he needed to be a certain way. He needed to be a certain disciple of that Jesus, the misinterpreted, Jesus. Peter was dependent on his own misinterpretations and visions of Jesus, and in so doing, he was dependent on his own strength and on his own ability to commit to how he thought Jesus would do things. That was a super complicated way of saying a really simple thing. Did everybody track with that? Okay, good. Don't misunderstand this, guys. Jesus was radic- or excuse me, Peter was radically devoted to his current understanding of Jesus. It's not like the guy was not radically devoted. When Peter declared, Jesus, I will lay down my life for you, he meant it. He literally meant it. So later when we get to chapter 18, Jesus is about to be taken by the soldiers in the garden. Peter literally pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear of one of the assailants, a fellow named Marcus, the high priest's assistant. And you guys realize that was a suicide mission for Peter. You have a peasant Jewish fisherman taking on a cohort of highly trained professional Roman soldiers with one sword. That was a suicide mission. Peter was willing to die for Jesus as he understood him. And in that moment, as he cuts off the ear of Malchus, rather than Jesus looking at Peter saying, that's why you're going to be the next pope. You're so devoted to me. Jesus says, Peter. Put it away. You still don't get it. Not by sword, not by violence. My kingdom is one of peace. And that was a breaking point for Peter in his mind. Who he thought Jesus was. How he had interpreted this Messiah to come from the Old Testament narratives. Who he thought he was supposed to be in relationship to this Messiah that he had misinterpreted. It all came crashing down in that instant. It finally broke. Peter's dependence on his self-made and projected vision of Jesus crumbled. And so just a few verses later, this little girl is asking Peter, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter, no, 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 no. I don't even know who Jesus is. Moments after the little girl asks him, another person, hey, I saw you with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Aren't you one of his disciples? No, 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 no. Finally, a third time, hey, I know you follow that Jesus guy. And with cuss words and swearing, the Greek text tells us, Peter denies his king. Something had shifted in this man. His confidence was utterly gone. And all that was surfacing, like lava coming out of the cracks of the shifting earth of his soul, was conflict and confusion and disorientation. Jesus no longer made sense to him. And who he thought he was supposed to be in reference to Jesus had not turned out at all. And so this man who said, I will die for you, instead, just as his king promised him, denied him. From our text this morning, that question that Jesus asks Peter is so important for us to consider in our personal moment right now. John 13, 38. Peter, church will you really lay down your life for me? Jesus was asking Peter in that moment, though he was so clouded in his vision, will you lay down your actual life, your broken, weak, disoriented, confused, failed, cowardice life? Will that life be laid down for me, a nonviolent backwards, counterintuitive king who doesn't do things the way that you or the world thinks a king should do things? Will you lay down that life for the real me? It's all loaded in that question to our souls this morning. Peter was willing to lay down his life for a particular personal interpretation of Messiah, a warrior, usurper, who'd run the Romans out, not a pacifist, nonviolent, crucified king. And because of this confusion of his vision of Jesus, it set him spinning out. And Peter was now no longer able to lay down his kind of self-made identity of, I'm the committed one, I'm the strong one, I'm the courageous one. Though he had devotion, it was devotion applied in completely the wrong way. And Jesus wanted all of Peter. Jesus wanted Peter the weak one, Peter the coward, Peter the failure, because then Peter's crisis would come produce a dependence that was fully on the real Jesus, not the Jesus of his imagination and misinterpretation. All of the weakness of Peter had to be exposed. He had to be humbled. His dependence had to shift from his own vision and self-made identity to the true Jesus and the way that Jesus saw him. In other words, Jesus in the process of sanctification and our crises, 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 the multiple terrible times that we go through that disorient us. In all of that, sanctification is realigning our souls with reality, with reality. Not the projected reality that we spin out there into the world, but reality as it is. Peter would have to, in this moment, begin, and for the rest of his life, really, until his death, he would have to reinterpret scriptures he had grown up with, in accordance with Jesus's actual actions, not his expectations. You know, quick story. When I was a brand new baby believer, I had zeal squirting out of my ears, (laughs) passion, clueless. All I knew is that Jesus loved me. And so even in the days when I was dating my wife, I can remember with somewhat of bravado (laughs) talking with Alexis, you know, (laughs) someday I wanna be martyred for Jesus. And I wanted to find a canoe, and I wanted to go find the most deep Amazon tribe possible, and I wanted to die with, like, darts from poisoned frog juice going into my body as I hailed Jesus the King. And as I told my wife this, she became the voice of Jesus. I remember her actually really asking me this, like, will you really do that, Dan? And then she said, you have yet to be tested to which I was like, whatever. (laughs) I was aghast. I literally thought, I am impressing this this woman of my dreams with my radical zeal and my commitment. And she's like, well, we'll see. You may turn out to be a real baby. (laughs) And here we are 20 years later, and I'm going to, with my family, confess the cracks. I've turned out to be a baby, a real baby. I have laid down my life, but it has not been heroic by any stretch of the imagination. It has been ugly. And the disappointments and the breakings and the burdens have brought me to the edge I literally cannot count how many times. There have been such long and excruciating seasons of uncertainty and confusion and pain, and I wanted to get in a canoe and go die for you, and here I am, and so far from that vision of who I thought you were and what I thought you would do with my life and who I actually am and all of my weakness and cowardice and brokenness and insecurity and shame. But I can say From this moment right here on this Sunday morning in beautiful San Diego with the soft breeze on our faces, there's a very secure thing that I have after 20 years of this. The faithfulness of my Father allows me to share with you fully, without fear or shame, I have come to the brink of denying, not only leaving ministry and church stuff, but leaving Jesus. I cannot do this anymore. You do not make any sense to me at all. I don't get it. I'm done. I have said that prayer Thousands of times. (laughs) These moments of breaking for us, they go by many names. Adrenal fatigue, midlife crisis, burnout. The spiritual authors, they called these times the wall, the dark night of the soul. In my own life, I had a terrifying prophetic dream and I came to call this process the void. Just the void. On the one hand these long seasons of bewilderment and desolation, they are terrifying because it feels like your world is completely unraveling. And the truth is, your world is unraveling in these times. It's coming apart. (laughs) On the other hand, these moments are absolutely necessary for the self-made images of our lives to die that the truest self might resurrect. And so dark nights and doubt and discouragements and the void... These, my friends, are sacred and holy seasons where our vision of Jesus is clarified and realigned with reality, with who he is and who we are. In these long seasons of bewilderment, through the void, into the abyss, the dark nights of the soul, burnout, midlife crisis, call it what you may, our kingdom agenda that we impose upon Jesus fails. Fails. And we learn what it is to be subject to the true king. And through it all, through it all, there is this initial born-again desire that some of the babies in this church right now are exemplifying. You get around them, and they're just like, they, you say Jesus, and they burst into snot crying. I remember that. That desire to just be with Jesus. And I'm telling you, in the darkest, darkest, most anguished moments of, I can't do this anymore, underneath that prayer is the spirit with the desire to be with Jesus. Where are you going? How can I get close to you, even though I want to deny you right now? (laughs) It's the civil war of flesh and spirit. And so the new creation brought about by God's spirit, he is there and he sustains us and he's faithful to guide us. And I want to ask you this morning, if that is you, welcome to the community of Christians following Jesus, where you find yourself on the cusp of denying the king today. But I think the Holy Spirit in Jesus's questions would invite you to investigate why it could be this morning that you're realizing that your devotion to Jesus was contingent upon your plan being carried out by him. There's been an imposition of your kingdom agenda upon the king, and he has said, no, no. Some of us, especially raised in the church, this deconstruction, this disorientation is forcing you. You're going to have to reinterpret scriptures, According to reality, instead of your expectation and imagination. And so, the self made vision that we've all created of ourselves as followers of Jesus, as successful in the world, as however it is that we gain a sense of significance, that pyramid of marbles comes crashing down over and over and over as God dismantles us. Do you guys realize how hard it is to hold a pyramid of marbles together? That's why we're loaded with anxiety. Do you know how impossible it is to hold a pyramid of marbles together? That's why we're freaking out and depressed because we cannot hold pyramids of marbles together. And that is what the construction of our false self in this world is, a pyramid of marbles. And Jesus is just like, and we're chasing marbles, trying to keep it all together. But let me ask you this question, and maybe it's just one or two of you. Let me just ask you friend to friend. Has your desire to be with Jesus really gone away? Do you truly no longer want his kindness and compassion and mercy and grace and friendship? You really don't want that at all? I don't buy it. I don't think so. And I'm telling you, I think that the deconstruction we see in our day is really nothing more than an entire generation of humans coming to grips with the reality that Jesus is the king and they are not. And that is a holy, sacred, beautiful, good thing about which we should not be freaking out. We should be praying for more of that. More and more and more of that. The deconstruction process like Peter, is is a beautiful process of all of us figuring out who Jesus actually is and who we actually are in him. And so we don't get to build our kingdom. He uses us to build his kingdom. He doesn't do life the way that we would. We live his life the way that he would. And I want you to hear this. This has been the most liberating thing for me. There is always, always a choice in these seasons of disorientation, friends. There is always a choice. There's always a series of choices. Jesus, throughout all these narratives right up to this moment where Evan took us last week, Jesus was there for Judas, even to the passing of the communion bread and wine into the man's hand. Judas, here is my body and my blood for you. Choose to surrender Choose to let go, and Judas didn't, and the text tells us that Satan entered him at that moment, and it was night, and it was cold, by Judas's choice. And so we can make those same sets of choices that Judas did. We can become fatalistic and resigned in our thinking. It is a choice to believe. When we are so disappointed, we can choose to believe that there is no hope that nothing will ever change. We choose to believe in our desperation and in our hurt that Jesus isn't the answer, so the only answer is to abandon him. In this generation of the church, I have seen this become so prevalent. What comes from that moment is entitlement. Entitlement. I deserve this. I have done this and this and this, and I've checked the boxes for my spiritual upward mobility, read my Bible, served in the church, This and that is what I deserve. That's the heart of an enemy of Jesus. We have to wrestle with that. Envy and comparison begins to rule in our hearts. Well, you do this with them, and you do this with them, and you do that with them, and, and our eyes are just surveying the land of what he does with everybody else, but what he doesn't do with us. And so then, bit by bit, those little choices of resignation and entitlement and comparison, they create more and more separation. And then what we do to ease the burden of our separation from God is we turn to distractions, pseudo means of joy and happiness, significance, intimacy. This is the root of our pornography addictions, of our Netflix and social media binges, and of our incessant pursuit of greener grass somewhere else. Then there are the choices that Peter made. And they are not exemplary. They are not heroic. The rooster crows after Peter's three denials. And the man chooses to break. He does not camouflage his brokenness. He doesn't cover up his cowardice and his failings. Jesus prophesied, you will deny me three times in your disorientation, in your confusion. Luke tells us that when Jesus was warning Peter about this he said Satan has desired to sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you and when you have returned strengthen your brothers and so Peter in this moment makes the choice to just break to just give up and it is not a beautiful noble moment for Peter it's not him standing, I'm committed to you and I will die for you. It is him saying, I am so broken, I have nowhere else to go. I did exactly what you said I would do. And he bursts into tears and he weeps and he surrenders to the brokenness that he now knows to be full in his life. When we get to the restoration of Peter in John chapter 21, which I wish we could get to the whole text today. I wish we could have like, I wish you guys would sit through like six hours of teaching and we could do John right. Right do it. I just got permission. When we get to restoration in John chapter 21, Jesus, Jesus comes to Peter. And I want you to see something. The man broke and then he didn't know what to do with his life. So he went back to the, what he knew what to do. He goes back to fishing. He's like, I'm going back to fishing. But the minute that he realizes Jesus is returning to him, Jesus is on the shore. They're all fishing. One of the disciples says, I think, I think that's Jesus. Peter chooses to dive into the water. He doesn't even wait for the boat to get back. As soon as he even sees a glimmer of what could be Jesus in his life, he dives in, and just as that initial desire prompted him, Lord, where are you, Jesus? Where are you? The moment he shows up, just a glimmer of him, Peter dives in and swims for him as fast as he possibly can. And then there on the shores, the resurrected Jesus, always eating, makes Peter breakfast some fish. And asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He's recounting the three denials of Peter in John 18. And every time Peter says, you know, you know, you know, the final, the final one, Peter literally, he feels grieved and he looks at Jesus and his answer, the, uh, the Greek text is like pretty bold here. Panta, you know everything. Peter looks at Jesus and he basically says, You know whether I love you the way I should or not. I don't even know. I'm so terrified of the hidden fault lines of my soul now. You know that I love you, and I trust you. That's discipleship. You know me better than I know me, and I'm going to trust you because I just want to be near you. That's all I want. I just want to be in your presence. Peter knew now that Jesus knew him perfectly. And so his misinterpretations and his confusion and his self-dependence and his self-made images, they were all gone. And now this broken man, his vision of Jesus was, I don't understand you, but I trust your wisdom. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do as you have designed for me to do. Number two, that was a really long point. Number two, and these will go much quicker. Jesus always knew this was going to be the case with every single one of us. He knew all the details of the denial and the restoration of Peter. He saw the dark night of Peter's soul, and he saw the light that one day it would produce. And so you and I can take deep, deep comfort in this this morning. He knows every decision, every motivation, every inclination, every imagination of the heart that has ever been is in this present moment right in the middle of this sermon as you take a deep breath and consider what's going on in your soul right now. The king knows every detail, and he knows every decision that will ever be made until the day you see him face-to-face, every single bit of it. He knows it in full, and this means that he is able to specifically shape your own personal dark night's your own points of exposure, your own points of breaking. He knows exactly how to perfectly detail that for your soul in the context of the souls around you, in your community, in the context of your church, in the context of the global work he's wanting to accomplish through us. He knows how to be precise with our particular personalities and our expectations. And so there isn't a single Christian. There's not a single one of us that won't go through this similar process. But because he knows our personal hidden fault lines, each of those processes are going to be unique. The pattern is the same. Belief, desire, disorientation, restoration. That pattern is the same over and over and over. But for some, short seasons of dryness are going to be more than enough in certain seasons. For others, There's going to be agonizing years of uncertainty and confusion. But God knows exactly the duration, the time, the depth, the level of darkness that will expose the fault lines that they might truly be healed. And finally, if Jesus knows, you need to know this morning, either you're heading for a season of disorientation, you're in one right now, or you're coming out of one. And I'm not a prophet. I just know that there is no disciple, no apprentice following Jesus that gets to escape this patterned process. There is not a single one. Let me give you some quick examples. Abraham was given this grand promise, you're going to be the progenitor of the nation of Israel. And then it took a hundred years for that promise to come to fruition. All that waiting disoriented him to the point where he took actions into his own hands sexually abused a slave woman named Hagar and created Ishmael, which the Bible politely calls a donkey of a man. (laughs) He messed it up. Joseph had his coat of many colors, dreams of his brothers bowing down to him, and then he was cast into a pit by them and spent years, multiple decades in prison on false charges before finally being exalted to the number three rank in Egypt. Moses knew he was going to lead God's people to deliverance. But took matters into his own hands, murdered the Egyptian, and then spent 40 years in exile in the deserts. 40 years. And it wasn't until after 40 years of exile that Yahweh comes to Moses and says, go and deliver my people. And at that point, Moses is like, nope. I I've been humbled. I'm too broken. Lord, you know everything. I don't even want to do this anymore. And God was like, now you're ready. Now go do this. David, out there slaying bears and lions and tigers, oh my. He also slays Goliath. He's the up and coming anointed king of Israel. And then he spends years being chased through the deserts of Engedi, hiding in caves from the demoniac Saul. No one escapes this process. No one. And yes, our stories are going to be different. Different circumstances, different expectations, different moments, different failures. But the pattern is always going to be the same. So here's what I want to close with. Just five more minutes to close this. Some concrete decisions. Some concrete decisions wherever you are this morning, either to prepare for what's coming. You can't avoid these things. You can't construct Jesus to do your dark night the way. It's not like you're like, hey, Jesus, I want my dark night to be this way. Deep, 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 deep. That's, that's the whole point. He's going to mess that up really bad, I promise you. So if you're heading for one, you're in one, or you're coming out of one, here's some concrete things to do in the midst of disorientation with Jesus. Number one, it's just the basics, guys. Be silent, be still, and wait. Be silent, be still, and wait. Now, I do think it's important for some of you. You need to be given permission to scream. You just do. You've got this nice kind of polished Christianity (laughs) where your prayers are like so eloquent and thy father and holy this and whatever. But on the inside, you are losing your mind and you act like Jesus doesn't know the details of you losing your mind. And some of you are like, you just don't. he, he, He wants you to scream. You need to learn to scream in prayer. But afterwards, you also need to just listen into the silence, be still and wait. In seasons where Jesus does not make any sense or what you thought you were going to be is falling apart like a pyramid of mar- marbles, we're not screaming to coerce God. We're just screaming out, saying help, and then stillness. In 2013, my elders at our church in Seattle granted us a three-month sabbatical. It was probably the darkest season I have ever certainly faced in, in ministry career life in particular, And so in 2013, they sent us off on this sabbatical. And somewhere mid-sabbatical, I read this in the message, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Lamentations. Lamentations is, is the entire nation of Israel coming apart at the seams and the prophet Jeremiah weeping over the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And Peterson paraphrases Lamentations 3 in this way. Would you, for a moment, just if you're comfortable, would you close your eyes and let me read this over you? Deep breath into your belly. It's a good thing to quietly hope. Quietly hope for help from God. It's a good thing when you're young to stick it out through the hard times. When life is heavy and hard to take, go off by yourself. Enter the silence. Bow in prayer, don't ask questions, wait for hope to appear. You guys can open your eyes. Be silent, be still, wait. Number two, surrender to reality. And what I mean by that is don't try to ignore the fault lines that are being exposed. Don't distract from the fault lines that are being exposed. Don't try to escape, don't try to run off, don't try to camouflage, don't try to coerce, don't try to fix it. Just surrender to what is the emotions, the anxiety, the depression, the cowardice, the justifications, surrender to it in the stillness and let God continually bring to the fore all the things that he sees in you and loves and loves and loves and accepts and does not condemn. And so in surrendering to his reality, we discern where we have been, trying to force our version of reality on him. And you know, for some of us, you're maybe more analytical, So you have this intellectual reality that you've been trying to force onto onto the Bible. I think the Bible should say this about our sexuality. I think the Bible should say this about science. I think the Bible should say this about politics and money. And then the Bible doesn't say what we want it to say. And we have to surrender to it. In in the millennials and Gen Z, it's, it's more along this lines. I feel, I feel that the Bible should say this. I feel this way in the way that I think about the world. And then we come to the Bible or we come to Jesus or we come into Christian community that's devoted to practicing the ways of Jesus together. And the community is like, nope. You may feel that and you may feel it way down into your bones. But we have to realign even our feelings, the things that we feel most certain about sometimes. Peter was so certain he was going to die for this Jesus. You have to let your feelings be completely reoriented to reality. Number three, be with your community. Be with your community. I love the church, but the church in the West has utterly belly flopped on this front. We have created communities that try to camouflage and present this like nice sanitized version of Christian presentation. <laughs> communities should be the place where you finally say, hey guys, I've got all these questions about the Bible hey guys, I feel this about this and this and this, and it's really causing me deep pain and struggle. We should be able to ask the most raw and scary hard questions. And I'm telling you, community should be the place where we all say, with certain questions, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. Jesus does, at the cross, in his resurrection. I'm not going to give you three points I'm so tired of the church giving like three succinct little answers to every little question. This is ridiculous. That's just not how reality works. This is a complex, nuanced universe in which we live, filled with sin and brokenness. And for us to say, here's my three answers to your deep existential. It's no wonder we are all being deconstructed. It's no wonder. But for us to sit in a community and just say, okay, you know what? I don't have an answer to that. The science thing, the sexuality thing, the politics thing, the money thing, the schism thing, the depression thing. I don't have an answer to what you are struggling with right now. What I have is Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected in the power of his Holy Spirit. And we can cry together in this moment as one. Be still, be silent, wait. Enter the silence. Be with your community. And then finally, we close with this. Focus on the light no matter how small, <laughs> no matter how small it is. If you are the one denying today, you're the one saying, Dan, I'm the one on the cusp of denying. I promise you if you would just just look into the darkness, there's a little pinpoint of light. I don't know if you guys have ever been in a dark forest or uh, in the woods deep at night. The tiniest little candlelight can be seen across a canyon, across miles. And so this morning, you may feel like I'm the one that's miles away from God. If you see a pinpoint of light in the moment of this sermon, in a friend crying with you, and in somebody giving you permission to scream, the tiniest little bit of light, St. Ignatius would say, wherever you see the tiniest little sprout of the kingdom of God coming up in the soils of prayer and relationship in your heart, tend to that with all of your might. Tend to the smallest little things. And this is why Jesus said, it's those little mustard seeds that become the kingdom. You guys realize, huge foundations with a tiny little crack in them into which a seed is planted, that seed grows roots and eventually that entire false foundation cracks and something true grows out of it. You have to tend to the tiniest little points of light. And then finally, 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 finally. For the love of Jesus, for the love of your souls. Learn to rest in the fact that he knows where you are right now. Take a deep breath and say, he knows. He knows. And so I can rest in his knowing love. St. Paul would say to the Romans, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were screaming, disorienting, confused, operating out of cowardice, justifying, lying, While we were yet sinners, while we were deconstructing, on the cusp of denying, Jesus Christ was being crucified to make a way for us, to save us from ourselves. And so we can come and we can say, no matter how far I've gone, no matter where I find myself at today, the King was crucified for me, and that aligns me with reality. That aligns me with reality. You are okay. (laughs) You're okay. No preaching, no teaching. Just one sojourner with another sojourner. You're okay. I know it's coming apart at the seams. I know our world is coming apart at the seams. So does He. You are okay. You are safe, you are secure in him, and you are infinitely loved. This this is a moment. This is a moment at communion this morning to come and say, I'm undone. And that's okay. That's good. Holy Father, as we, as the church has done for millennia now, as we gather around the elements of Jesus Christ's body and blood, May we be undone, not, not just for emotional feel-goods. That can be even as much a distraction as reality is. But to truly be undone in the soul. To be with Peter, looking you in the eye after hearing the rooster crow and just breaking, coming to acknowledge these fault lines were deeper than I could have ever imagined. But you are stronger than I ever could have fathomed. I do want to pray specifically in communion time this morning for the one in the void, in the darkness, in the depth of, of uncertainty and doubt. Merciful God, put your hand upon them. Just a glimmer of light, just just the tiniest little sprout of the kingdom breaking forth in the foundations that they've built, the false foundations. And just let there be a sweetness about our time of communion together. Here in community, in the silence, in the stillness, in the presence of the risen Christ. This tiny little church plant nestled into the the broader kingdom of God throughout the globe. Our tiny little sliver of the pie. Together with the church this morning. Thank you so much. Work your work, Jesus. Amen.